Chapter 6 It had been my plan to go back to New Hampshire to see my grandmother after I left New York, but there wasn't time for that now. The original Emily, you haven't heard of her, her moment was brief and came to nothing, was already gone. I flew to Detroit and took a commuter plane to Traverse City. The executive director of Tom Lake drove the hour and a half north to collect me from the airport, which made about as much sense as Ripley sending a limo. It's awfully nice of you, I said, wrestling my suitcases into the trunk. I don't pick up actors. I had an eye exam. He briefly lowered his dark glasses to show me his dilated pupils. But this gives me a chance to bring you up to speed. I stared at him, then bobbed my head a little from side to side. Can you see? Enough. His name was Eric. And after that car ride, I never crossed paths with him again. Just because the company was iconic didn't mean that it wasn't forever on the precipice of financial ruin. Eric's job was to bring in major gifts and soothe patrons who were offended by a particular show and make sure the ticket sales were on track. In a normal season, the actors weren't his problem, but so far this wasn't shaping up to be a normal season. Emily had bailed, and the stage manager, a character actor who'd spent ten years playing the indelible Uncle Wallace on television, had transitioned from a heavy drinker to a worrisome drunk. Worrisome because Uncle Wallace, otherwise known as Albert Long, was the washed-up marquee name people drove over from other counties to see. No Emily and a knee-walking stage manager isn't the best place to start, Eric said. I said something sympathetic, but really I wasn't listening. Who can listen to complaints about actors in the presence of so many cherry trees? Miles and miles of them in full ceremonial headdress. Look at this, I wanted to cry, as we raced down the straight country roads in Eric's old Volvo station wagon. But surely Eric had seen the trees before. He told me I would get the other Emily's salary and better accommodations. He'd been able to snatch back the program from the printers at the 59th minute of the 11th hour. They'd play up my soon-to-be-released movie and two seasons of unremarkable television. If you can think of anything else, that would be helpful, he said. I assumed that my Red Lobster commercial, Everybody Loves a Fried Shrimp Feast, would not be helpful. I'll think about it. We deal in embellishment around here, he said, his eyes on the road, but not on either side of the road where the action was. He said he'd hoped I'd stay the summer. The other Emily had been slated to play May in Fool for Love after the run of Our Town ended. We could look for another actress, but if you could do it, that would be one less headache. I had never seen the play, hadn't read it, but I'd always thought the title was snappy. Don't you want to see if I can act first? Eric shook his head. That's not my job. If you've made it all the way to my car, it's because other people think you can act. That's good enough for me. Charlie said you were excellent, by the way. He said they wanted to cast you in the Spalding Gray production, but the backers wouldn't go for it. They needed a name. It was entirely possible that Charlie had been blowing smoke at Eric, or that Eric was blowing smoke at me. But on the off chance that was true, 
and I could have played Emily on Broadway without having to sleep with anybody at the Algonquin. I wished he'd pull the car over for a minute and let me throw up. I stared at the trees instead, that endless expanse of trembling petals. I told Eric I'd stay for the season. What's in the boxes? I asked. What boxes? I pointed, thinking his eyes must be really bad. Big wooden boxes were set out among the trees. They were everywhere. Bees, he said. They come in boxes? He nodded. Farmers rent bees. They come in an 18-wheeler, and when pollination's over, the truck comes back and takes the boxes someplace else. Summer stock, I said. And for the first time since I'd gotten in the car, Eric laughed. Tom Lake turned out to be crushingly pretty. There was a huge covered amphitheater sunk into the rolling lawns. The musical ran in the amphitheater. They also had a black box theater where they staged the straight plays like Our Town and Fool for Love. There were tennis courts with a clubhouse that served iced tea and sandwiches. A smattering of lovely houses, some that had been turned into administrative offices, some for boarding the actors and designers and technicians, and some where regular people spent the summer spread along the shore of a tremendous lake. Fruit trees bloomed, paths meandered, hills swelled like someone had clipped pictures out of a pile of magazines and then glued the very best ones together on a single page. A couple of miles away was a small town that took most of its annual revenue from the summer tourists who came to stay in one of the two hotels, have supper, and spend the next morning wandering through the little shops before coming over with their theater tickets. The most ambitious ones walked in for a show, then caught a shuttle bus back. They wore Tom Lake t-shirts and Tom Lake hats as they paddled rented canoes past the diving platform and out across the lake. The whole thing was a fragile ecosystem, as small towns and theater companies usually are, but as far as I could see, it was thriving. I had two suitcases, and Eric carried the heavier one up to my room in the company housing, leaving the smaller one for me. The name of the previous Emily was still on the door. You won't understand how nice this is until you've seen the other rooms, he said. We need to build more housing. That's one of the 62 things I'm raising money for. The room was nice in the same way the best dorm room can seem nice. A double bed, my own tiny bathroom, and a window that was open and overlooked the lake. I'll have someone bring the schedule by, he said. I'm afraid you're going to have to hit the ground running. I unpacked as soon as he left, hanging up my dresses and putting my shoes in a line on the closet floor. I arranged my travel clock and a small pile of books on the nightstand. The girls I'd gone to high school with were married now. They had little houses in New Hampshire with sofa sets and televisions, forks and knives and spoons, maybe a kid or two. During those years, when they were hanging wallpaper in the nursery, I'd been living in a furnished studio in Los Angeles, a place that came with everything, sheets, towels, a dish rack. I had money, but no idea of how to spend it so I didn't spend it. I liked the lightness of my life, the feeling that I could leave tomorrow and go where they needed me, New York, Michigan. 
not counting my winter clothes, which were still in the closet of my grandmother's spare room. My worldly possessions amounted to the contents of these two bags, more or less. I hadn't had any real success, but every one of those high school girls knew about my life. And as much as they may have had the story wrong, they wished they were me. In their place, I would have wished I were me, because this unremarkable room with the remarkable view in middle of nowhere Michigan was everything that had ever been written about freedom and possibility. I pushed the empty suitcases under the bed with my foot, then stood at the window staring, thinking how nice it would be to use the word lush again after such a long time in California. The light was so much softer here and still so much brighter than New Hampshire's. I would send postcards to Charlie and Ripley tomorrow. I would tell them both how grateful I was, how much I already loved the place. Eric had left the door to my room open behind him, maybe so I could get a cross breeze, and when I turned around, a tall, slender man was leaning against the doorway. He had been watching me watch the lake. Pretty grand, right? He said. My mind did that quick mental calculation women must make when they find their exit blocked by a man they don't know. How far down if I had to go out the window? Too far, I was guessing. He saw me, he caught it, and took a step back into the hall. He held up a piece of paper. Schedule, he said. Ah, you can come out, or I can come in, or I can lay it here on the floor between us. He leaned over partway to pantomime his intention. His eyes were dark and overlarge in his thin face, his black hair long and pushed behind his ears. He stood up suddenly and very straight, the paper still in his hand. He was wearing a linen T-shirt and very long surgical scrub pants. If you invite me in, I'll tell you a story. Come in then, I said. His ancient espadrilles were dirty and folded at the heels. I'll risk it. He smiled. Oh, good, good. But he barely came into the room at all. He left the door open wide and leaned against the wall beside it, as if it were exactly the spot he was meant for. Who picked you up at the airport? Eric. He puzzled over this. Eric, who? I hadn't asked his last name, proof that I'd been in California too long. Eric. The executive director. This seemed to impress him. I've never even seen the executive director. I'm assuming he didn't tell you anything about the lake? He did not. He wouldn't know how lucky it is to be the one to tell it to a newcomer. Actors are all about luck. Executive directors are all about spreadsheets. People are going to be rushing you from every direction, wanting to tell you, but I'm the one who got here first or first after Eric. You're an actor? He looked down at himself, scrub pants, espadrilles. It isn't obvious? No, I mean, of course, but actors don't usually deliver schedules. No one seemed to be confined to their regular jobs in this place. They do when the errand is presented as a personal favor to a very busy assistant stage manager. Checking out the new blood, 
I call it being thoughtful. Plus, I wanted to be the one to tell you the story. Did you tell the last, Emily? Unfortunately, no. Someone beat me to it, which makes this a sort of redemption. Well, it wouldn't be fair, really. What wouldn't be fair if you got to tell all the Emilies? He nodded. I hadn't thought of it that way. So you've seen the lake? I have, and you know what it's called? Tom Lake, I said, but that's a guess. He smiled again, showing off the wonkiness of his size XL teeth. I'd been told that wonky teeth, like unpierced ears, were valuable human relics from another time. Excellent guess. He gave a single clap. The lake does have an official name, the name they put on maps and water table records, but that's no concern of ours. I wouldn't think so. What you need to know is that all this land was once owned by a very wealthy family, Vanderbilts of some sort, though I'm not sure of what sort. Railroad money, oil money, money money, you know, the type. I gave a slight nod, although I didn't know the type from Adam. They spent their summers here, or a very small part of their summers, the part where they weren't on a ship or in Scotland. They had a castle in Scotland, which isn't quite as impressive as it sounds, because you frankly can't swing a cat without hitting a castle in Scotland. The many children were overseen by many Scottish nannies. I should tell you that these were the friendly ones. Scottish nannies get a terrible rap. They do, I sat down on the windowsill, thinking this might be a long one. He stopped. We do not do that, please. What? The windowsill. Not when the window's open. Really? We already lost one, Emily. She didn't fall out the window. I looked down at the ground as if to check. He shook his head and pointed to the corner of the room. Isn't that a nice chair? I was sorry to give up the view, but went and pulled over the chair nevertheless. Thank you, he said. What about you? The room lacked a second chair, and the windowsill was out, and I didn't feel like offering him the bed. I'm a stander by nature. I do better standing. Okay. Where was I? Scottish nannies. Such a big, goofy smile, I thought. A movie star smile. He stopped again. You're a wonderful listener. Thank you, I said. Occupational hazard. Ha! Well, that tells me how long you've been acting, if you think actors are good listeners. Scottish nannies, I prompted. He nodded. So, the family had a passel of girls, and then Tom, and then another boy after him. But our story is about Tom. Tom something. Tom, scion of the aristocracy. Tom and his favorite Scottish nanny were taking a walk around the grounds. It's a beautiful day, not unlike this one. And Tom points up the hill and asks the nanny, who owns the house? And the nanny says, oh, Tom, your father owns the house. I told him I thought his Scottish nanny accent was remarkably good, not that I'd ever met an actual Scottish nanny. Thank you, he said. So, young Master Tom goes on, who owns the trees in the orchard, he wants to know, and who owns the horses, and who owns the hill itself, and who owns those flowers? The nanny very patiently gives him the same answer every time. Your father, your father. It's a patriarchy. I- I- I'm sorry to say, 
The mother had no ownership of anything, not even herself. Understood. By now, young Master Tom is running low on inventory, but he likes the game, so he keeps looking around until finally it occurs to him to ask about the lake. Who owns the lake? And the nanny will call her Heather. Not that history wrote down her name, but it feels polite to give her one anyway. Heather, for whatever reason, says, Tom owns the loch. Me? the boy asks. The stranger propped against the wall of my bedroom. Let a split second of wonderment wash across his face, making himself into young Master Tom, then just as quickly sent it on its way. The moment is very touching, and maybe Heather thinks she's made a mistake, but let's be honest, the whole fucking place belongs to the father. There's no reason the boy shouldn't get the lake. So he asks her what the lake is called. I see this one coming, I said. There was an apostrophe S back then. Tom's lake, but time condenses experience. Sure. The kid's aglow. He spends a solid 20 minutes throwing stones and sticks into the water and shouting his own name. After Heather finally corrals him back to the house and down for his nap, she tells the story to the kitchen girls, and even the head woman thinks it's charming. She says Heather ought to tell the missus, and so Heather does. And the missus loves the story, and she tells her husband, and her passel of daughters, and while it's never a formal decision, they agree. From then on, it's Tom's Lake. When he stopped to make sure I was still with him, I realized he hadn't told me his name. He had told me only the name of the lake. Now I know, I said. Well, there's a small coda, if you have one more minute. You're the one who knows how much time I have. He had the schedule in his hand. You're good. Let me just finish up, okay? Somehow, the boy never catches on that the whole lake thing is a charade. We all have a blind spot, right? That bit of incorrect information from childhood that mysteriously never gets updated. The person who makes it to 35, believing that unicorns had been hunted into extinction. Wait, unicorns weren't hunted? He smiled at me, tipping his head to one side as if to say, I was adorable, as in, I was to be adored. So, Tom grows up and finds himself a bride, the sister of one of his Princeton friends, and he thinks, it'd be nice to get married here, to show her Tom's lake. Out they all come, the families, the friends, the massive support staff, everyone on the train. Tom hadn't been to the house in years, and the place is even more beautiful than he remembers it. He can hardly wait to show her the lake. Does she have a name? He paused for a minute to consider this. No, but for the sake of this conversation, we'll call her Lara. That same look of slight discomfort must have come across my face again because he held up the paper in his hand. It's on your schedule. And your name? Peter Duke. Peter Duke, I repeated. Such a nice sound. The two of them are walking hand in hand, and he's going on about the house and the cherry trees and how they'll spend at least part of their summers here. Then he points to the lake, which, as you've no doubt noticed, is difficult to miss. Tom's lake, he says. And what he's telling her is that all of this is his, his and his family's, but eventually his because he's the oldest son and therefore hers in part. 
But of course, that's not the way she hears it. She says, that's so sweet. But really, what's the name of the lake? Because clearly, this is not the family trout pond. The lake goes on for miles. It doesn't belong to a single person. And just as Tom is about to repeat himself, he stops. He suddenly remembers that day with Heather, who was, by then, long back in Scotland. Heather, the first woman he'd ever loved, because his mother was never really available to him. And at that moment, standing there with his bride-to-be, he realizes that this body of water he has only heard referred to by his own name was not named for him at all, and that it did not belong to him. Worse yet, he has no idea what the lake was called. I went back to the window to look again at the lake and the day to imagine the two of them stopping for this conversation. Tell me they didn't call the wedding off over this. I was not a particularly romantic person, but still, that would have been a disappointment. Duke shook his head. Quite the opposite. In fact, something miraculous happened. Something that sealed their love forever. Tom told Lara the truth. Involuntarily, I yelped. I made the sound a small dog makes when you accidentally step on his paw. Oh, my God! I was totally with you. Nothing in his face betrayed him. His cheeks didn't flush. His long black eyelashes, so ridiculous on a grown man, did not cast down. He told her that he didn't know the name of the lake and that he had only this minute realized this fact and that his nanny, and truly, his entire family, had infantilized him, not with malicious intent, but as a sort of a sweet joke that was emblematic of both their love and how he had been coddled his entire life. He told her that he didn't know the name of the lake at all. I believed you this entire time! This would have been his Siddhartha Gautama revelation the moment the prince casts off his wealth to go and live among the suffering and the poor, to seek his spiritual path, but he loved her too much. Stop! And he loved the house. Really, he was crazy about the house and the place in Scotland and the triplex in New York. So why is it called Tom Lake? No idea. You're not playing George, are you? He didn't seem young enough to be George but I thought he probably could have played the invisible chickens, if that was the part he'd been given. He gave me a casual two-finger salute. Editor Webb, newspaper man. <gasps> You're my father? I had hoped your mother would have told you someday. We stared at one another until the small room felt very small. I was the one who looked away. You've got an hour, he said, holding up a second page. There's a map. He took one large step forward and laid the papers gently on the bed, as he might have picked me up and laid me gently on the bed. This is a story about Peter Duke, who went on to be a famous actor. This is a story about falling in love with Peter Duke, who wasn't famous at all. 
It's about falling so wildly in love with him, the way one will at 24, that it felt like jumping off a roof at midnight. There was no way to foresee the mess it would come to in the end, nor did it occur to me to care. I have long been at peace with Duke, the famous actor, but my feelings for the person who walked into my bedroom that first day at Tom Lake are more complicated. I've made a point never to think of him at all, except that now I am thinking of him. I am making one part of my life into a story for my daughters, and even though they are grown women and very forward-thinking, let's just assume I leave out every mention of the bed, even the two sheets of paper that are resting there on top of the covers. I feel like I'm on the verge of anaphylaxis, Maisie says. I'm serious. My throat is closing up. Emily and Nell just look at me. Their throats already closed. The four of us are back among the cherry trees where the rain is falling so gently we don't even acknowledge it. How do you ever get over someone like that, Maisie asks. What she means is that I must not be over him still. And I must never have loved their father as much as I loved Duke. Do you remember when you would beg us to take you to the county fair every summer? I want so much to make them understand this. How the three of you would not shut up about the fair. The fair! Oh, my God. I wanted to drown the whole lot of you in a bucket. You would needle and whine until finally we gave in. Your father and I would try to get you to come to the community hall and look at the quilts and pet the Angora rabbits, but you wanted to eat chili corn dogs and cotton candy and then get on one of those god-awful rides that had been put together by three heroin addicts with a sprocket wrench. The rides that made you feel like your head was going to be flung off your neck by centrifugal force. One of you would vomit on the other two in the ride, and then the next one would vomit on me in the parking lot while I was trying to clean you up, and the next one would vomit down the back of Daddy's neck in the car. And then, in the morning, you were all bright as daisies, begging to go back. Do you remember that? I loved the fair, Maisie says. Her sister is still mute with wonder. I turned to face my middle child. Would you want to go now? Maybe, she says, but she is 24, the age I was at Tom Lake. Would you say that the ride was better than being a veterinarian? That you'd rather be whipsawed by something called the zipper than you would deliver the foal in the middle of the night? I can argue with Maisie because Maisie is logical and strong. I will always be afraid of waking up the part of Emily that has long been dormant. I will always be afraid of accidentally breaking something in Nell that is fragile and pure. But Maisie is up for it. No one will ever have to worry about Maisie. I don't see why you have to give up one for the other, she says. You don't have to, I tell my daughter. You want to. You wake up one day and you don't want the carnival anymore. In fact, you can't even believe you did that. Nell turns her face away. Emily is holding on to her own braid with both hands. They aren't buying it. We're not talking about a carnival, Emily says. We're talking about Duke. I believe in Duke. I want to tell her she used to believe in the Easter Bunny, too, but I don't. I could say that to Maisie, but not the other two.